Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming two guests to the show, Rabina Verbeek and Susanna Twarag. Rabina and Susanna are the co-founders of SOS, which is transforming wellness on the go through a network of smart vending machines that deliver just-in-time necessities where and when you need them. Each machine offers modern premium health and wellness products from brands such as Cora, First Aid Beauty, Hero Cosmetics, Megababe, Kosis and Ursa Major. The company's design-first hardware features a large, engaging touchscreen and serves as a visually rich advertising and marketing platform. SOS participated in Techstars 2020, one of the leading startup accelerator programs, and Rubina and Susanna jointly hold seven patents that underpin SOS's vending machines. Prior to co-founding SOS, Rubina worked at State Street for almost 10 years. That's where she and I met. She is a graduate of Wellesley College and also did studies in Amsterdam and Bologna. Susanna also worked at State Street and prior to that at Brown Brothers Harriman. She is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. Robina lives in San Francisco. Susanna lives in Boston. So they are managing company from both sides of the coast. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So your story is a really interesting story and I want to kind of get right to it. So tell the audience, I mean, I gave it a little bit of a description, but tell the audience a little bit more about SOS and how the two of you zeroed in on this idea for the business. I know you met at State Street, kind of what's the backstory? Yeah, so the vision for SOS is really to transform access to premium health and wellness products on the go. And that vision was born in a moment when Suzanne and I were at work on the trading floor, leading our careers, focused on building client relationships, building collegial relationships with peers in the workplace, and consistently found ourselves unable to access health and wellness products when we needed them, whether those were menstrual care products, hair ties, deodorant, simple things that people need when they leave the house. And this is actually a problem that is universal so it's something that happens when you're at work, when you're at the airport, when you're at a hotel, when you're at a restaurant, there's a lot of application and kind of persistency in terms of the problem that we're actually solving. And that was one of the big things that we were most excited about when we had this vision to transform this space is there's very broad application for what we have created, right? And we knew that from the very beginning, vending machines, which are the most logical distribution channel for something like this really needed an update. Most vending machines conjure up these horrible images in people's minds of right. you know, three broken devices that are sitting in a basement somewhere. So from the first initial moments, we knew that we wanted to redesign and reimagine that concept that people have and actually set forth to 
create the first of its kind SOS machine that now does hold those patents that you mentioned earlier, JR. So we really pride ourselves in being a design first hardware company. It's something that we think about every day. We think about how the hardware elevates and how one would interact with our devices, whether they're in a lobby, in an office, at a sports stadium. And I think we'll continue to be a really big area of focus for us as we evolve into the next generation of machines and additional markets as we continue to build the company. Founding stories are always really interesting to me. What were those early months like for the two of you? So I would say that the early months were some of the more exciting months that we've had since founding the company. And essentially from the moment that we had the idea and we started to work on a business plan, we have been working furiously nights and weekends and really all consuming in in the sense that there is no moment where we're not thinking about the business and how we can make this vision come to fruition. So I would say from the moment we had the idea, we immediately decided that we were going to build this business and we sought out to tap into our personal networks. So first and foremost, looking at family. I come from a family of lawyers. Rubina comes from a family of entrepreneurs and artists. And so we both took our own resources and got in touch with a patent attorney to start to frame out the, like from a legal perspective, what building the business would look like if it was possible. And Rubina tapped into some of her network to identify resources that we could work with from a design perspective. So there was a lot of attention to detail and a lot of attention spent in those early days and weeks and months in putting a framework in place that would allow us to actually take this concept and this vision to become a business and bring something and a piece of hardware to life. I was just going to add, practically speaking, what that meant was we were working around the clock, right? So you would wake up, we were on the trading floor for market open, we would work a full day, the day would end, we would walk over to a conference space in Susanna's building at the time. This was years ago. She's since moved. But in this conference room that was ironically called the innovation room and would sit there for another four hours, sometimes longer than that. And I would then commute all the way back home, which was an hour. So it was easily 20 hour days for a long, long, long time working together. But I think what fueled us was this blank canvas, what we were building and what we are building does not exist. And so that's a really exciting space as a human to go and kind of create something in. I think there's something very fundamental about the human experience that seeks out ways to create and shape things. And we were very much fueled by that and fueled by the collaboration between the two of us and would have these moments where ideas would start pinging back between the two of us and it just continued to build on in terms of our go-to-market strategy or the stakeholders that we could bring in. And so it was a very, like she said, very exciting time. Neither of you are engineers or designers by background, right? So to me, it's particularly interesting that you chose to pick a hardware business. When you mentioned a little bit about seeking out that expertise, but talk a little bit more about kind of how that whole process unfolded for two non-engineers to design a hardware product, get those seven patents. I'm pretty impressed. Thank you. I think a lot of it was just sheer willpower. You can imagine people told us constantly, we didn't know what we were talking about and we didn't. Like they were right. (laughs) We didn't have necessarily the ability to speak the same language when we finally did identify an industrial design firm to work with. We didn't have that same framework. And so what we had to do was just 
find in our own way a productive manner to work together and convey our ideas in a way that translated. And I think over time, we've gotten much, much better at that. We understand, for instance, a scope of work and what that means in the context of a design project, the type of details that need to go into that. As we have continued to iterate on the hardware over years, we've started to become, just through experience, I think a lot smarter and more agile in how we work with those different types of partners. Yeah. But it was hard at the beginning, right? And you're also, we don't have not just the experience, but we didn't have any relationships in these worlds, yeah. right? We are fusing retail and real estate and hardware, and we came from finance. So right. that didn't really have any benefit for us, unfortunately, in those early days. Part of beginning to try to understand and dip our toe in the water with these industries that we had no clue what they were about was just refusing to hear no as yeah. an explanation. And I think a simple example of that is if you've seen our machines in the market, you know that they have rounded edges. So a lot of vending machines and hardware that's in the world today, it has square edges. And from the very beginning, Robina and I said, we want this machine to be round and curvy, an attractive piece of hardware that's designed first. And it's different than anything that exists for women. Women are curvy. We want the machines to be aesthetically pleasing. And we got told no. And we said, why? Tell us why. We had no experience with steel manufacturing and right. sort of fabrication, but we just refused to let a vendor or a third party just tell us no and not get an explanation of why. And ultimately, that sort of ferocity has paid off because we've ended up with a product that actually looks identical to the product that we had imagined and dreamed could exist. So wow. maintaining that passion and insistence that we needed solid answers and to be certain that something was not possible before we just walked away and decided to move on. Yeah. Did you fund your own operations or did you get outside funding right from the get-go? So we funded, we each invested in the business initially. So that was our kind of startup funding, so to speak, which was really scary. Yeah. JR, we've been working really hard to build these careers in finance and we effectively each dumped our savings into the business. It is not cheap to build hardware in the world. And we very much understand that because we put our own capital into this enterprise. That initial funding helped foot the bill for a lot of the patents and that initial design work and the CAD renderings that we developed in those early days. But we soon did need to raise outside funding. So we actually raised, while we were still working at the bank, we went and raised a round of funding that would allow us to continue to develop those prototypes. Because at that point, we were still pre-production, pre-prototypes. And so we were able to manage kind of the day job with the evening job because we were able to tap into these third parties. Yeah. And did you, just coming back to the patent aspect, did you tap into your family's legal connections, Susanna, to work that piece of it? Yeah. So... Coming from a family of lawyers, I always have run things by my parents or my sister, all of whom are lawyers. And the initial idea ran by my father, who suggested immediately, which is an exception for him since he's a pretty practical guy, but initially responded and said, we should set up a meeting at Mintz, which is a Boston-based firm, and, right. and actually speak to a patent, patent attorney. And for Robina and me, that was a capital outlay initially that we had to commit to, this wasn't free. This was going to be engaging with a law firm and having a statement of work for a project that we had no idea what the outcome would be, but it was really important to 
make the vision and the idea real by actually investing in the capital resource into a legal team to work with us that wasn't just family. So while my family members have happily look over an agreement or for instance, helped us set up our first operating agreement for free, which Mm -hmm. was very much appreciated. We really did intentionally invest in hiring our own counsel and also engaging in a proper statement of work with the contract manufacturer and design firm that we identified through Robina's family. So while we did tap into and are very lucky to have had resources help us, we engaged in formal working relationships pretty much from the beginning, which I think has paid off, to be honest, significantly, the fact that we did that so early on. Yeah. I mean, a lot of early stage companies wouldn't have invested in seeking patents, getting the protection, all of the legal costs that go with that. So it's certainly going to help you in the long run. Yeah, we did get a friends and family discount for sure. So our our investors are happy about that. Yeah. And Rabina, I know you have come from a family of entrepreneurs, as we talked about a couple of times. How did they help you in terms of their expertise? Susanna just mentioned one of the ways, but how did they help you more generally? One of my uncles has an industrial design firm in Holland, and he's worked with a lot of clients worldwide over the years on various hardware initiatives. And he would probably call himself a hardware entrepreneur as well. So it's interesting because I had never really spoken to him about business in my entire life. And then him with this idea and said, is your company a company that we could work with in these early days to help just put a design together that an engineer could interpret and a manufacturing team could actually produce. And that's exactly what he does. And that's a learning that we had. So most people don't know that in the world of hardware, you have an industrial design firm. So they're actually creating the ones that brainstorm with you and create what is called a CAD rendering, but it's effectively a 3D model of what you want to build. And it's built in a way that could be handed to a manufacturer and then fabricated. And so that was actually really important exercise for us early on to go through that with the design team and then we worked with them to identify our initial contract manufacturer. Great. As a kid, did you envision yourself becoming an entrepreneur, continuing the family tradition? So I will say that my family never really understood why I went into banking the way that I did. And I've always had an entrepreneurial itch. And for a long time, once certainly Suzanne and I became friends at work, we would just toss these ideas around to one another. Some of them were really nuts. I can't even remember all of them because we got so honed in on this one when she came over to my desk that day. But we were both so ready to do something completely different from what we were doing day to day at the time that when she came over with this idea, it was like, this is a no-brainer. We need to go pursue this. I knew from a very early age that I would want to work for myself one day. And so I think that has also been kind of a key driver for me just this autonomy and ability to kind of create and build things that you want to. Yeah. Which at this point now, since we have a team and we've really secured funding to go build this company is a real privilege that not many people have. And so we feel certainly very lucky and fortunate to be in the place that we are today. What about you, Susanna? Did you envision being an entrepreneur as a kid or what were your childhood visions So I don't think I even knew what the word entrepreneur was as a child, but I certainly 
was always looking at the world with a lens of why can't this be better? Why is this this way? Why is this something messy or not done right or inefficient? And so over the years, my family, particularly my father, would get the occasional email or call from me asking him about an idea or telling him about something that I thought might be patentable. So when he got the call from me about SOS, I was like, oh, dad, I have an idea. Like, I think this is the one. And it wasn't intentionally because I was dying to be an entrepreneur, but it was just because I had constantly just been looking around, seeing the world with yeah that vision or lens of there's room for improvement. And yeah. this is a where there is so much room for improvement. And there is such a wide audience who is impacted by this horrible, awful problem that we should be the people to solve it. And I think I ended up being an entrepreneur. My family probably would say that they always thought I would be. I didn't necessarily. Interesting. You both worked in big financial firms before making this jump. How did the experience of working in the financial services industry and a big company help you and not help you in terms of making that shift into what you're doing now? So we've talked a little bit about how it didn't help, right? It wasn't relevant in the context of subject matter expertise and the networks that we had built to that point also weren't very relevant for what we were building from a capital P product perspective, meaning the machines themselves. But we talk a lot about, even today, the professional experience that we gained working in that environment, the front office experience that we gained, the ability to build relationships and network and close deals and negotiate terms and really think about the business operations as well. So what are the kind of goal setting or frameworks that you need in place daily, weekly, monthly to actually manage a team? What are the kind of requirements that you need to build and bring new ideas to market? What's your go-to-market strategy? So a lot of the kind of business planning and business strategy elements that we were exposed to in our work have translated into some of the frameworks that we use today at the company, right? We have OKRs, we have KPIs, we run a very, even at a small scale, structured kind of working method, which I think has led to a lot of productivity and a lot of really amazing output and traction early on. And I think that deal-making expertise that both Suzanne and I had from actually a pretty young age in the finance world has also paid dividends because whether you're selling a financial service or you're selling SOS, for us, our ability to interact with executives and very senior members of leadership teams at various organizations, that's a skill set that is retained and is just applicable in a new environment. And so I think that, I don't know what the right word is per se, but that kind of education, so to speak, was very, very yeah. helpful. I think corporate grooming might be <laughs> some of what has paid off in terms of those executive level relationships and right. able to carry ourselves, especially in the early years of founding the company. So in terms of really putting on a good show and telling a story and gaining trust and confidence in executives is something that we had both spent a lot of time in our careers working on professionally. And it's something that we've had to continue to do and is certainly very important for running this company going forward. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit to today, just to give kind of state of play of, you started this back in 2017. And so five years in roughly, where are you today in terms of kind of deployments and 
people working in the organization and all of that. Yeah, so a quick rundown of where we are today. So we have gone through at this point, three rounds of funding. That funding allowed us to bring our initial machines to market in 2020. Um, Our initial installs were in Boston at very premium, very well-known enterprises and venues like the Prudential Center, Fenway Park, South Station. So we were very proud of that. And I think have continued to build on those initial installations to continue to build out a very robust pipeline of clients and cities and locations where we're going to be bringing SOS to this year. I obviously, as you mentioned, live in San Francisco. That happened at the end of last year in terms of my move, which has brought an entirely new lens to the company about how we think about bringing SOS out West and expanding kind of the business here. So for us, we have a target of getting to hundreds of machines in the market as soon as possible. And I think we're very well positioned to do that with the clients that we are working with. I think it is amazing when we started to today, the types of conversations that we're having with executives. At the beginning, it was really a matter of convincing people that this was needed. And there's been so much that has happened in the world that the conversations now really are around locations wanting SOS in their offices because they perceive it as the standard for health and wellness. And one of our initial learnings were obviously two women. We were focused on a very kind of female, so to speak, problem, but our first customer was actually a man. And so this concept of building a business for everybody and really thinking about our positioning in the market and evolving that has been another kind of learning that we've had over the last five years that will carry on into the future go-to-market strategy for the company. But we are a team of 12 right now. We're going to be expanding. We're probably going to be raising another round this fall. So for us, we want to build a national brand. And I think we probably won't stop working on this until we do, knowing how far we've come already. Yeah. If you stuck with it for five years, you've probably seen the hardest days in terms of just really having that faith in yourselves. Everybody always says to be an entrepreneur, you have to be an optimist. You have to have just this incredibly strong sense of conviction to stick with it. Otherwise you'd give up. So, and you've made it this far. Fingers crossed. I think one of the things we didn't talk about, but it's an interesting point for folks that have never started a company. It was fairly serendipitous that Susanna and I started this venture together. We had never necessarily formally discussed starting a business together. And one of the greatest surprises and delights that I think we would both say SOS has brought us is this business partnership, right? We had never really worked together in this way ever. And so I think for anyone starting a new venture, finding a co-founder and finding a partner that you can lean on when times get tough and can help bring you up when you're having a bad day and vice versa, that has been so integral to this journey. And I think it's a really important, again, just point to raise for anyone that's listening, that's thinking about doing this finding a person that you feel like, yeah, I could go through the trenches with them. And that's really what we were blessed to find in one another without really knowing or vetting each other in that way beforehand. Yeah. How do the two of you complement each other? I was just going to add, I think it's like lightning striking to have a partnership like ours in the sense that from that founding story and that moment where we had the idea, stepping into a conference room and investing our own capital, we have been truly in lockstep with the commitment and passion that we put into this business. 
from the very beginning and have worked through and invested in having tools as a partnership to get us through the hard times. And I think from a co-founder perspective, Rabina mentioned that being collaborative leaders and running this company makes the highs so much higher to the celebrations with one another on our successes are wonderful. And on the downside, the bad days or the bad weeks or months, or even, I would say we even had almost a bad year, Mm -hmm. (laughs) are easier to survive because we have one another to lean on. So strategically, you asked how we complement one another. I think we typically are fairly aligned strategically on what we're trying to build, which I think is very important. We do challenge one another and we as a business has grown, and especially in the past year, have really started to divide and conquer in terms of the verticals that our business touches. And that's proving to be quite successful. So we are there as support and the ability to like check one another when we're decision-making on important factors. But we're able to basically take components of the business where there's a little bit of edge or there's a bit of an alignment on a skill set and lean in on those verticals to be more productive and to also work with a growing team. Other fun facts. I'm a night owl. Susanna is the early bird. I'm the blonde. She's the brunette. I'm a little taller, but I think we've over the years mastered the stance, the stance together of if I'm having an off day with a client and I feel like, oof, I've got to really step it up and put on my best act. And I just am not up for it. She's someone that can step in and do the same song and dance. And so I think this interchangeability is really powerful between the two of us. But as she mentioned, our recent focus has really been just around efficiency and productivity on the team. And so figuring out what those verticals are that I would run with, or she's going to run with has been a great additional recent evolution of our partnership, which is paying real dividends. And I think we just have such trust in one another at this point that it's makes that a lot easier because I know if something is in her court, it's going to get done. Yeah. And having that strong connection, the alignment that you've both described and the ability to depend on each other and know that it will work out if you're not maybe at your top, your peak, as you were saying a minute ago, Rubina, and that's a huge advantage to have that in a co-founder. So you're lucky. The two of you are lucky. How have you filled in around yourselves? Like, what do you look for in your team? What's most important to you? Oh, so many spaces and places we need help. But yeah, go ahead, Susanna. The first thing I'll say, which from the beginning, and I think back to our corporate experience and being in finance and the roles that we held, we have never been shy of outsourcing what we're not good at, finding experts to ask for their advice and bring in people or teams or vendors who fill gaps that As non-technical founders, we clearly come to the table in a hardware business with a lot of gaps, and we haven't ever shied away from saying, let's identify the right resource, let's find the right person to bring in. And I think prior to any additional team members, just in terms of the working relationships and the people we would ask for advice, we've had a very open mind to identifying great people, great teams, and great vendors. I'll pass it to Rubina to talk about the team building component in our first hire, but We've been very intentional and very open-minded to having the right people around us from advisors to investors and also now team members. Yeah. I think on the team side, one of the greatest stories we can probably tell is our first ever hire actually worked at our first ever location Yeah, and saw what we were doing and was like, 
I want to go work on that. Like yeah. that looks really fun. She came in as a generalist. She came in with, again, formal experience in kind of a typical kind of tech product role, but has evolved into our product manager and she is exceptional. And we are extremely fortunate to have someone like her, her attitude and her perseverance like ours really kind of fuels the team and the folks that are reporting into her, which is amazing, not only for her as a manager, but also her as a person to see this kind of evolution over the last couple of years as she's really moved into a more specialized role from this initial kind of general point. And I think as we think about gaps, we were able to bring in one of our earliest investors as our head of strategy and growth last year. That was tremendous. He has been served as president or COO of many organizations and has really stepped in and provided us with, I would say, a really terrific additional kind of management perspective and executive perspective on how we're going to grow our business and the frameworks that we need in place internally to support that growth. So really thinking about what are the kind of executives that we're going to need to have? What are the kind of mid-level hires that we're going to need to make? And from a junior perspective, what are the types of resources that we can tap into to make sure that from our clients' point of view, we're really providing them with the best-in-class service? I think that we have found a group of people on the team right now that is similar to kind of our initial mindset, so unwilling to accept no as an answer that they are just ferociously creative and they are really passionate about what it is we're building, which is very exciting, right? To work on this problem together with people that are now more than just Susanna and I, it's a group of 12 people and soon to be even more than that, that are all kind of focused on how do we create this amazing first of its kind smart vending machine network and brand and how are we going to push the boundaries and what are we going to do that surprises and delights people when they interact with our devices. And we have a team of people that are now thinking about that every day. And it's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. How does the revenue model work? You've got a mix of advertising and sales, obviously, but how have you thought about the broader revenue model and where you want to go with that in the longer term? We've had a three-pronged revenue model since we were literally building out our first financial model years and years ago, is one of the most exciting parts of our business is we have this multi-pronged approach. So you mentioned digital out-of-home advertising. So our machines and our hardware actually have 32-inch prominent digital displays that serve programmatic and direct campaigns through our network. So advertising and the media component of what we're building has always, from day one, been the largest value driver of our business. So what we can do for brands on our screens with a captive high value premium audience is extremely, extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. The second is the distribution channel that our machines facilitate for products and retail. So each machine actually has 10 unique SKUs or products in the machine, and we're able to transact on a retail basis and generate revenue through product and distribution. And then the third is an amenity fee. So from the beginning, SOS was designed and is built as an amenity service. So we are introducing unprecedented first of its kind amenities to corporate and graded commercial space. And we run a model where we are paid a per month per unit service fee by locations that we run our network in. So whether it's a corporate office space, a stadium, we are actually generating revenue from running our proprietary network in those spaces. 
Okay, cool. I had not thought about that third piece, the amenity fee, but clearly, as you say, that you're giving people the sort of early chance to do something that nobody's really done before. Yeah, I think we are beyond just providing access to essential products to people who need them. We are giving these location partners and real estate partners access and oversight that they've never had before into what's happening in their space in terms of inventory management and control that is web-based and cloud-based. In addition to that, we're able to drive interactive feedback and surveys on the network for those location partners, corporations, and that value and the data that we're able to collect and generate for commercial real estate partners and corporate partners is huge. Mm -hmm. And again, first of its kind and the type of information that is very, very valuable to location partners. So I would say the value that we're driving and the network that we're running and operating, we have costs. We're running and licensing software, designing and building hardware, restocking and managing inventory oversight. So there's a lot of cost SOS that the, you know, Mm. must at least be paid for. Yeah. It's not the simple business that like an app would be right. There's a lot to this business that keeps you busy and challenged all at the same time. Yeah. It's a physical business. We said we're physical world. We're part of the built world. And that introduces a whole host of complexities, whether that's how we navigate supply chain impacts or how we think about merchandising one machine to make sure that people passing by to have the best experience possible. It's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole, which is something that definitely keeps us engaged and busy most days. Yeah. You've gotten a lot of good PR over the last few years. What have you done to drive the PR story around SOS? Thank you. I would say we probably both would agree we hope to get much more PR (laughs) soon. We have not invested much resource to that. And it is quite an undertaking, which you don't see maybe from someone just kind of reading different articles. But there is a lot of effort that's put into how a brand message or kind of brand announcement is curated and chiseled to make sure that it hits on the right themes and really kind of targets the right audience. That's actually something that Susanna has been leading for us recently. And I think it's paid dividends. So I'll let her speak to that a little more. Yeah, I think from a press and coverage perspective and just getting our story out there, we've had the advantage that from the very, very beginning, we've been punching above our weight class. So pre-product, we didn't have a physical machine. We were locking in grade A commercial real estate partners like Boston Properties and Tishman Spire and Oxford to take our business seriously and Also, on the brand side, we had brands and CPG brands signing up, wanting to work with us, again, before we had any hardware. So in terms of getting our brand, SOS, aligned with real, significant, substantial national and international businesses from the very beginning certainly helps our credibility. And those are the kind of names that press and decision makers look for when they're evaluating a business and the viability of a business. So that's definitely helped. And since the very beginning, we have taken this from a concept into a product launch, a product expansion, and have really, again, continued to be intentional with investors that we've brought on who've been extremely sort of influential and making sure that our story and our product Mm. is talked about. So we've had good fortune, but I'd also say a lot of really intentional 
initial legwork has put us in a position where we have a strong sort of company story to tell. You've both mentioned your investors and your advisors. How did you go about picking those groups and how have they helped you in maybe in ways that we haven't talked about so far? I would say that we had to start from scratch. That's the first point. So we were not able to and did not bring in anyone that we had met through our careers at that point. And so in 2017, we really had to forge completely new relationships from scratch in entirely new industries that we had zero experience in. And so there was a lot of, as you can imagine, nose and kissing of frogs and people we came across that you just get an energy from and you're like, this is not someone I want involved in what we're building. It's too important to us. It's almost like dating a lot of conversations and meetings held. And when we finally would meet someone where it's like, oh, they really understood the vision. They really understood what we were building. They had experience or individuals in their network that we felt were really aligned strategically with where we needed to go. It would be a fairly simple discussion about bringing them in in some formal way, whether that was through an investment or through an advisor relationship. We knew and were told pretty early on establishing a board of advisors was something that would be quite helpful. And so the way we went about doing that was we looked at the different verticals of our business, real estate, advertising, CTG and beauty, et cetera, and went and tried to find basically the best and most influential and most helpful individual within those markets based on the network that we had available to us and then brought them in formally and created a pretty, I would say, formal corporate structure where we would meet with them on a regular basis and update them on where we were on the business, focusing on certain topics and having them help us continue to build that network and traction early on. So what are your goals for this year? You've talked a little bit about that and you mentioned that you envision seeking another round of funding, continuing to grow the organization, but where do you want to be at the end of 2022? So I now live in San Francisco. We do not yet have a machine in this market. That is definitely on my list. I want to see more SOS machines in San Francisco by the end of the year. So that is definitely selfishly a goal that I have. We are in the process of expanding with several very amazing sports teams and organizations across the MLB, NFL, NHL. I think going to a couple of games where our machines are all throughout the stadium is on my bucket list too. So I can not only get a hamburger and some French fries, but I also can maybe grab a deodorant wipe on the way back to my seat. That sounds pretty awesome to me. So I think those are the two big things, just seeing more machines on walls. When yeah. I my house. I'll go out there and I'll throw a number on a goal and I'll say, we'll have over a hundred machines live in the market. We will have signed or be reviewing multiple term sheets for our series A round that will be hopefully close to closing by the end of the year or have closed. And we'll have grown our team. I think that in order to support the business and the growth that we're going to have this year, we're going to need to bring in more people. So having a great group of hires lined up Those are all things I think we want to have happen this year. Yeah. And what about for the two of you individually? What are you looking to develop in yourselves this year to help advance the state of the business? I think on a personal note, I have been working quite a bit on just active listening. And I think getting better at that 
for so long, it has just been Suzanne and I and kind of the two of us going, 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 talking to one another. We have a certain style of communication for sure. And I think taking a step back and just really listening to the team, their ideas. We have, as we've said, such amazing people on the team that really hearing from them and letting them start to really guide and take ownership in some of these areas is something that really excites me. And I think we have the right people in place to do and run with some of these really big initiatives and projects underway. And so just taking a step back a little bit, not necessarily in kind of my day-to-day work, but just in my approach with the team. And again, moving more into a listening position than kind of directing position, if that makes sense. Absolutely. What about you, Susanna? So for me, I am actually a new mother. So for the first time in my life, I have two babies. So the first and the oldest is SOS and the second is Sebastian, who I welcomed in September. And I think this year will be an exploration in having two main focuses that compete with one another and just finding balance. I love both dearly and both are very important to me. And so I think just continuing to evolve as a new mom, an entrepreneur, a founder, and proving to a lot of people who might challenge that it's possible that I can do it. So, yeah, it's a lot to have all of that going on at the same time, certainly. I'm conscious of time, but any career lessons that you would want the audience to take away that we haven't talked about? I would say we say this a lot, but it's like, just go do it. Just move faster. Like you're moving too slow. If you have an idea, just start with something. It will build and it will evolve. And it might be a Frankenstein type of solution temporarily. And our first machines, I can't even tell you how many problems there were with them, but you just have to keep going, moving forward. Don't take no as an answer. It's really just about this constant motion. You need to be in motion and moving. Otherwise, you're going to get outpaced. Totally agree. I think that it really is true that anything is possible. Rabin and I left finance, created a hardware company that's operating in multiple markets, that's running a tech stack completely outside of any of our you know, core experience. And I think that there's no person that I would encounter who shares an idea with me now that I would say, don't try, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's totally possible to do it. You just have to have commitment. And to Rubina's point, you've got to go do it. Motion, ask the questions, get started. And yep. I would say one other thing, just as a high level, which kind of ties back to something you just asked us, JR, is we are all human. And I think it's very important to communicate when you appreciate what people are doing, say, I'm really excited about this. That was awesome. This is great. These small little words of recognition actually go really far. And they go even further when you're working at a startup where capital is so constrained and you you can't pay people like we used to get paid in finance. It's a totally different environment. And so being really mindful of the impact that the world has on people these days. I hate to say it, but it's true. We've been living through these very unprecedented times. And so this concept of recognition and just really expressing your gratitude goes so far. And I think is something that we have and will continue to very actively roll into our team culture is just really showing people how much we appreciate what it is that they're doing. Yeah, that certainly goes a long way. And as you say, especially when you don't necessarily have the ability to financially reward people in the way that they might be rewarded if they were off working for a big established company, financial services or otherwise. So 
Great. Well, this has been awesome. I appreciate the time from both of you. It's been really interesting to hear your story. I'm looking forward to seeing how this year and beyond goes for you. So that wraps up this episode of Career Sessions. I want to thank Rabina and Susanna for joining me today, sharing their in-progress entrepreneurial story. So again, thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.